Between the Covers is brought to you in part through the support of Propeller, a magazine of books, music, art, film, and life, and its publishing imprint, Propeller Books. Visit them on the web at propellermag.com and propellerbooks.com or on Twitter at PropellerMag. Before we begin today's program, I wanted to talk briefly about a past guest, Jesse Ball, and an offer he has made to listeners on behalf of the program. I suspect many of you know who Jesse Ball is since he was recently a guest on Between the Covers, and yet is already the second most listened to episode of all time. If you don't know him, you should definitely check out our conversation and explore his work. Jesse Ball sent me copies of his 2006 book that he co-wrote with the Icelandic poet and novelist Thordis Bjornstadir called Vera and Linus to offer as gifts for people who support the Between the Covers Patreon campaign. Vera and Linus is a gorgeous object, full of illustrations, and made with care by an Icelandic small press. The story is composed of a mixture of what could be called prose poetry, flash fiction, and sketches, and Publishers Weekly says of Vera and Linus, the light touch and often archaic feel of the prose owes as much to Kafka as to classic fairy tales. Certainly, many readers will find this book unsettling, but most will also find it hard not to remember a time when the world was filled with this kind of fearful mystery and wonder. Vera and Linus is out of print. The Icelandic publisher no longer exists, so this is a rare memento. For people who are not already supporters of the program, if you begin ongoing support of the show at $2 an episode through Patreon, that is patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash between the covers, you can receive a copy of Vera and Linus. If you're already a supporter, either via PayPal or Patreon, you likewise can get a copy by increasing your support by $1 an episode, or if you're a PayPal supporter, beginning a Patreon support at $1 an episode. Again, this is at patreon.com slash between the covers. Enjoy today's program. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is poet Ray Armentrout. Armentrout is one of the original members of the Language School of Poetry that emerged in the 1970s and includes the likes of Ron Silliman, Lynn Higinian, Susan Howe, and Charles Bernstein. Armentrout studied poetry with Denise Levertov, earned a master's degree in creative writing from San Francisco State University and was a long-standing professor of writing in the literature department at the University of California, San Diego. 
Armin Trout's 14 poetry collections include Next Life, selected as a New York Times notable book, Up to Speed, and Veil, both finalists for the Penn Center USA Award, and Versed, for which Armin Trout won the Pulitzer Prize in Poetry and the National Book Critics Circle Award, and which was a finalist for the National Book Award. Armin Trout's poetry has been widely anthologized, appearing in language poetries from New Directions, postmodern American poetry, American women poets of the 21st century, and many editions of Best American Poetry. She is also the author of the prose memoir, True. Ray Armentrout is here today to talk about her two latest books of poetry, the chapbook Entanglements, that collects her poems that engage with quantum physics, and her book Partly, New and Selected Poems 2001 to 2015, both from Wesleyan University Press. The American poet says of Partly, what marks this enthralling collection is the clarity of thought regarding thoughts that are constitutionally unclear. <laughs> Armin Trout walks us over to what usually cannot be said and finds a way to say it. She helps us spend time with the idea of the reality of a thing being its movement rather than its substance. Steph Burt in the London Review of Books says that Armin Trout re- reminds us that we see only what we have learned to see, what our lives and our societies will let us see, that there is no unmediated nature. Michael Robbins in the Chicago Tribune adds, for nearly 40 years, Armin Trout has made a poetics of not finding the right words, of finding, in fact, the wrong words. Armin Trout restores the strangeness of experiences we take for granted. And Grace Cavalieri of the Washington Review of Books exclaims, Ray Armin Trout is back in town. <laughs> words are equipment, disassembled and reconstructed to not only make meaning, but to show process of meaning. Call it modernism, postmodernism, constructivism, avant-garde, or a mix. What we encounter are minimalistic, fragmentary structures that make the whole by breaking the whole. Armin Trout is funny, witty, wise, and philosophical. The book is a selfie of the mind's kaleidoscope. Welcome to Between the Covers, Ray Armentrout. Thank you, David. That was very thorough. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's start with your book, Entanglements, your collection of, of poems that um, more than others engage with, the, with quantum physics, both its language and, it, and its concepts. A lot of, I, I think a lot of people might find physics and poetry to be a strange marriage. So I, I'm, I'm curious what draws you to it and maybe the ways that you see specifically that... Um, they might share sensibilities or the ways in which they diverge that are, that are productive for your, for your poetry? I started reading um, popular books on physics sort of by accident. In the 80s, I think it was, I read that book called The Tao of Physics, which a lot of people read. And um, I found that it made me write. At first, it's, you know, like uh, many people, I found it sort of absurd. Um, and it is, in a way. Uh, it's beyond common sense, certainly. But that sort of got me writing. And then um, I came back around to it in the maybe early 2000s, and I started reading, you know, The Ele- Elegant Universe by Brian Greene and books by Lee Smolin and Lisa Randall and other physicists. And the more I read, the more I got puzzled. And I find that when I'm puzzled, that's what starts me going towards a poem. 
So it's not that I feel that I really understand this stuff. I mean, I'm no mathematician, that's for sure. But um, it, it triggers my imagination somehow. And I try to understand it as well as I can, too. Maybe I was attracted to it because I was raised uh, by an evangelical mother. And so um, I was raised on Genesis. So in a way that, you know, all stories like Genesis tell the story of the beginning and um, sort of answer the big questions. So I became a skeptic or an uh, agnostic when I was only about 12, which sort of, you know, caused a few problems in my household. <laughs> but I, I still remained with those questions, you know, if not um, God in seven days, then what? You know, how? And uh, I didn't really have any answers to that. I started trying to make it up for myself. I was 12, you know, I was an arrogant 12-year-old. But um, so, you know, when I started reading physics, and especially, I guess, at first cosmology, um, I felt at home in that way about, you know, it was talking about how things might have started and where the edge of things might be, you know, which is always an intriguing question. So when you say that puzzlement is the beginning of poetry for you or mm -hmm. the beginning place where a poem might might come from. And you talk again at the end here about um, coming to the edge of things. It, it reminds me of the conversation you had with the physicist Brian Keating. And he has you read a, a Whitman poem called uh, When I Heard the Learned Astronomer. And the poem asserts a fundamentally different relationship to knowledge and wonder between a poet and a scientist. And the poem, I think, raises the question, does knowing more and does naming and classifying what we do know take away or add to an experience? And uh, I was just curious if you, if what your thoughts were about um, wonder in relationship to knowledge and then in relationship to science and poetry. And then, of course, there's also that great poem by Emily Dickinson that goes, uh, split the lark and you'll find the music, bulb after bulb in silver rolled, which, of course, is, you know, deliberately absurd. If you split the lark, you won't find the music. You'll find the blood, which she gets around to later. Um, yeah, uh, well, I, obviously, I don't feel that kind of antipathy to science. It, it, it sparks wonderment in me instead of shutting it down. I mean, admittedly, if I were, uh, you know, a college sophomore in a physics class, I might feel a little bit differently about it. Um, I might feel a little more constrained, but um, I don't have that those constraints. And I don't, I mean, I do very much respond to uh, nature viscerally, to just seeing nature, which is what Whitman was talking about. And I write about that experience, too. But um, intellectual wonder and aesthetic wonder can both come into a poem. I don't see why not. Yeah. And I think that, that Keating was arguing that there's a lot of wonder in physics. Mm -hmm. yeah. but, I, but I wonder if, if um, the different, one of the differences might be that wonder isn't an end goal or isn't, you're not trying to produce wonder in science, right. even though it's more like a byproduct of science. Whereas mm -hmm. in poetry, when you talked about when I find something puzzling, that might be the beginning place of a poem, and then moving yourself to the edge of things, you said at the end of that first comment, I, I wonder if, if for a scientist moving to the edge of things isn't to experience wonder, even though that might happen, but it is to know more. 
Well, you know, they have to be trying to know more. They have to be trying to find the truth. But on the other hand, I've heard it said, and I can't remember which scientist said it, but some scientists said that the most, the best thought a scientist can have, the most exciting thought a scientist can have is not Eureka, it's Huh, that's funny. <laughs> because, you know, when when experiment experimental data doesn't um, conform to your theory, then you know you have work to do. Then you have a project. Right. Then you have a place to go. And that's what's exciting. Well, I think a lot of listeners who, are, who aren't scientists or were averse to science in school are prob- probably familiar with the class uh, – physics for poets. Mm-hmm. A lot of people in the humanities took classes called physics for poets for uh, to, re- to fulfill a requirement. Right. Well, you, you've t- taught a class that sort of, forgive the pun, it flips the equation, mm-hmm. and you've taught uh, poet poetry to physicists. Poetry, or physics, for, yeah. poetry for physicists. Yeah, yes. it's an exact flip. <laughs> yeah. So what was that like? And like, I know you've, you've obviously have a long history of teaching poetry to to aspiring poets, mm-hmm. what was what was the experience like of having a whole bunch of aspiring physicists engaging with poetry? It was Brian's idea. He wanted to do it all along. And uh, that's one of the ways in which we got together and, and started speaking to each other. Um, he thought that physics students didn't um, pay enough attention to language. Eventually, they would have to write and they would have to speak. He's a very good speaker. And they should uh, just pay more careful attention to language, which, of course, is what poetry encourages. And Brian would talk about a particular topic, say the role of the observer in physics, which is, as many of you know, a kind of uh, interesting, vexed, problematic role when it comes to quantum physics. And then I would segue from that to maybe the role of the reader in interpreting poems. And then I would give some examples from poetry and we'd talk about that. Or maybe he would talk about different kinds of symmetry in physics. Mm-hmm. And then I would talk about symmetry in, in poems. And I could I could have them read uh, Blake's The Tiger that talks about, you know, the fearful symmetry that God has created in producing the tiger. Um, I also showed them Easter Wings, which, you know, produces an actually on-the-page version of a mirror symmetry, but, you know, reproducing the shape of the wings. So, I mean, we kind of um, matched themes that way, and we would sort of take turns. Let's hear a couple poems from Entanglement, if we could hear uh, Chirality and and Ether. Sure. Okay, I'll start with the Ether. We're out past the end game where things get fuzzy, less thingy, though in past times we practiced precision, concrete as a slot machine. But to be precise, you need to stop a moment, which turns out to be impracticable, and besides, speed is of the essence. Don't worry, of can take care of itself, and it's fine to say essence now that it's understood to mean ether, a kind of filler made either of inattention or absorption somewhere near the plank length. Chirality. If I didn't need to do anything, would I? Would I oscillate 
in two or three dimensions? Would I summon a beholder and change chirality for him? A massless particle passes through the void with no resistance. Ask what it means to pass through the void. Ask how it differs from not passing. We've been listening to Ray Armentrout read from her latest chapbook, Entanglements. Uh, the line in Ether where you say, we're out past the end game where things get fuzzy, less thingy, it makes me wonder if there's something specifically about quantum physics that brings it closer to the world of poetry than other sciences. Mm-hmm. Uh, the notion of, of contradiction and paradox and bafflement is something Mm-hmm. That most poets are, or many poets are enga- engaging with. <laughs> yeah. um, but it seems like it's brought into the fabric of quantum physics in, in a way that it isn't brought into Newtonian physics or into uh, a lot of biology, for instance. The fact that a wave uh, can is also a particle, mm-hmm. um, the mm-hmm. duality paradox, or that strings and string theory have a length, but they don't have a height or a width, um, or that something can be singular and also infinite. At, this, mm-hmm. at the same yeah. time. And so it made me wonder um, if that was part of your attraction around this engagement and if maybe that's what you're referring to by uh, quantum weirdness when you talk <laughs> about quantum weirdness in the introduction. Well, I mean, that quantum weirdness is actually a phrase that physicists themselves use, so I picked it up from that. But your question about uh, why physics would this kind of physics would attract poets... Uh, One thing you didn't mention is the way that subatomic particles such as electrons are believed to be in in more places than one. It's impossible to to specify their location until they're measured or until they interact with another object. So they have, in a way, they have no essential existence. If location is part of existence, they don't have that. They only have potentiality, sort of a potential to exist. And um, that is a sort of fuzziness, certainly. And you could make a metaphorical connection between that and um, double or multiple meaning in poetry, sort of um, a polysemy, I guess is the the technical word, where meanings uh, hover and various meanings are possible. So that's one way to look at it. I'm a little, in this poem, I think, in the ether, I'm playing out um, a kind of uh, sense of contradiction myself because the poets I grew up on and most admired were the imagists such as William Carlos Williams and Ezra Pound, um, for whom precision was really everything. And uh, they really emphasized the concrete. Williams famously said, no ideas but in things. Mm-hmm. And yet, now, what is a thing? Um, That's getting less and less clear. You know, a thing is material, but what is matter? I mean, when you really take, the closer you get to it, the less matter there is in matter. As most people know by now, atoms are mostly empty space. And then they're made up of these subatomic particles that may or may not really be there um, at any particular place. So... And then as, as we know from Einstein, matter is equivalent to energy. So how material is matter, right? So how thingy is a thing? Right. That's kind of where this poem started. And I, and I think that's another thing that's really interesting about 
quantum physics is the language seems to uh, nod towards a metaphysics, even when it's not intending to. You have the, the line, um, uh, we're out past the end game, and what does it mean to pass through the void in your poems? Mm-hmm. The sense of a contemplation of, of mortality, which goes back to what you had mentioned earlier about your uh, upbringing in an ev- evangelical mm-hmm. home. And there was something you say that's really great about matter in that essay, Cosmology and Me. Um, it is often said that fundamentalists are literalists. What is seldom said is that they are materialists. Could, could you talk a little bit about how a uh, fundamentalist, or particularly your mother as a fundamentalist, was a materialist um, and not just a literalist? And, and and then the way you trouble the word materialist yeah. in, in that, the way you sort of just did for us. Right. I I hadn't really thought about that, but I guess I'm in this poem I'm doing some of the same things I did in that essay. Well, I mean, if a fundamentalist, um, this may be controversial, but um, takes everything in the Bible literally, then they 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 really resist metaphor. Um, so seven days means seven days, even if there was no sun at the time because the earth was created first. So there is a way in which, um, you know, Jesus had to be resurrected bodily, uh, physically for it to count. Um, so there, there's a particular kind of, um, through literalism, connection into the material world. And maybe in some ways that's what makes Christianity radical and interesting, the idea of the incarnation, that, you know, spirit actually becomes matter. I mean, that can be interesting, too. And it's uh, more dramatic, I think, in in, uh, Christianity than it is in some other religions. You mentioned in that piece that, um, so fundamentalism is a type of materialism, but like what you just said, um, we don't actually know what matter is. We know that matter has mass, but what is mass? Yeah. And so what you end up doing with a literalist uh, uh, approach to life is to sort of uh, push on it and end up with more questions than answers, which is sort of going against yeah. your upbringing in a way. Right, And right, making your, right. your very upbringing something strange. Yes, that's true. I mean, I, especially in poems, I really prefer to leave questions open and... Um, I mean, I think I grew up in a world where there were a lot of a lot of lines of in- inquiry were foreclosed, and um, so I'm maybe still even relatively late in life rebelling against that, wanting to leave thought open. Well, let, let's hear a, a couple more poems. Um, I was thinking spent and, and particular would be would okay. Be. I'll start with particular. In a way, it's got some kind of connection back to the poems that we were just reading. Particular. Rough, squat, bent, crabbed, cranky. A crank is a person who is over-enthusiastic about a particular topic. To be particular is to be choosy. A particle is a body whose extent and internal structure, if any, are irrelevant. You there, let's dispense with these properties of matter, such anachronistic clothes as ghosts wear. Let's be mirrors, facing mirrors, 
fall in love. Spent. Suffer as in allow. List as in want. Listless as in transcending desire or not rising to greet it. To list is to lean dangerously to one side. Have you forgotten? Spent as in exhausted. We've been listening to Ray Armentrout read from her latest book, Partly New and Selected Poems 2001 to 2015. Another way that your poetry intersects with science and metaphysics in a less explicit way is around the nature of self. Um, it seems like both in philosophy and in science, there's a, a division with regards to whether a self exists beyond the constructed self. Um, but before we go into the ways your poetry plays with the constructed self and destabilizes the constructed self, I, w I was curious if any of your science reading was science reading about the nature of self. Mm -hmm. or it yeah, is. I've, I've branched out from... Um, from physics into biology and neuroscience and, you know, cognitive science, which is fascinating. Yeah. And so I know, as many, I don't want to sound like I know a lot, but I, as many people do, that working memory is very short. Um, so, you know, what can possibly be in your conscious mind is very limited. And there's a lot more going on in your brain and your body than you can ever be aware of. And yet most people identify themselves with, you know, this little flashlit area of consciousness. Um, and I don't mean to say that that's not important, but it's also not, it's also a kind of con con contrivance, I guess. It's a, a user illusion. As to, to, um, that's a term from uh, computer science, I uh, think, right? Um, the, the user e illusion is how the um, user of a computer interfaces with the computer. You know, some app co comes up, some icon comes up, you click on it. You have no idea what's going on actually in the computer. I mean, most of us don't. Uh, well, it's kind of like that with our relationship with the world, too, you know, the way our brain reacts with the world and with itself. I mean, we're all – I hate to say that the – I hate to only say that the self is a social construct because I think there's more to it than that. I mean, we're – biologically composite. We are made of a sort of confederation of cells, all of which have agreed kind of to work together and to, and to divide labor up and become a brain cell or a liver cell. But they all start out with the same DNA and they all start out in stem cells, you know, being pluripotent. They could be anything. So, you know, they kind of teamwork, they divide up, they, uh, and they're in communication with each other, you know, in ways that the conscious mind doesn't know, doesn't hear, except maybe sort of vaguely. So um, a self is a kind of colloquy, a kind of confederation in many ways. And um, then even if you just talk about the conscious self, that's complicated too. Because how often is what you're thinking actually something that comes to you from um, the outside, either the remembered voice of a parent or what you heard in a pop song or a movie or it's kind of a pastiche. And I'm not saying that there is no self. I'm saying that it's, um, it's a, 
it's a complicated pastiche, and uh, will is a small part of it. I love that idea of the confederacy of cells that mm-hmm. agreed to form a transient composite. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I want to talk about that in relationship to your poetics. You you have this essay called Feminist Poetics and the Meaning of Clarity that I found re- very illuminating regarding your, your sensibility. And in it, you critique poems and poets that employ what you call a totalizing metaphor, ones that create an impression of clarity and order by suppressing anything that would disrupt the metaphor. You say, only information tailored to the controlling code is admissible. No second thoughts or outside voices are allowed. And I wondered in in reading this if the constructed self is similar to the totalizing metaphor, uh, Mm. constructing itself through omission and loyalty to a Mm self-narrative, a controlling code. And if paradoxically... um, by not working with a total, totalizing metaphor, by allowing second thoughts and outside voices, a poem might have more access to a contemplation of selfhood um, or its possible absence. I, I wondered mm-hmm. what you thought about that. Um, I, I think that's very interesting. Um, and I think you're right. I mean, I, I really agree that the ego is a kind of performance and that most people who think of themselves as, I'm a this kind of person, I'm a that kind of person, I'm an extrovert, I'm loyal, I'm uh, honest. You know, that's true some of the time for anyone, and then lots of other times it's not. I had a therapist once who told me, for instance, that I was a perfectionist. Um Yes and no. And I guess yes and no is what I would say to pretty much anything, frankly. But, you know, in some ways I am. I'm a perfectionist when I'm working on a poem. I'm not a perfectionist about my, I don't know, the state of my wardrobe. So um, we're all more complicated than our, our narrative of ourselves allows for, I think. Well, let me let me uh, read back to you a couple quotes that you've said mm-hmm. and just hear hear your thoughts about them in light of this. One of them is, Asking a poet to represent the personal life is, paradoxically, to turn the poet into something other than a person. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Right. I mean, to be a representative, even if you're being a representative of yourself or a representative, a spokesperson for a group. And there's certainly a time to be a spokesperson for a group. There's a, you know, there are occasions for that. But anyone who's done that knows that when you're doing that, you're playing a role and you're not, it's not equivalent to um, your full selfhood. Mm-hmm. And another really fascinating one. Loneliness is a theme that runs through a lot of my poems. The very separation between I and me, a separation which is central to being a conscious subject, creates loneliness, I think. Can you elaborate what you mean about the separation between I and me and and in its relationship to loneliness, but just in general also? What what do you mean by that? To be aware, you have to stand outside what you're thinking and look at what you're thinking. So right there, you're two people. You're the person thinking and the person thinking about what you're thinking. Mm -hmm. And there's a kind of splitting there. Um, you could probably think about what you're thinking about what you're thinking, you know. So, the, I mean, consciousness is just full of division and splitting. Mm-hmm. 
And in a way, that divides you from your initial impulse. You've said that your poems tend to put identity and agency into question, partly through what you call throwing your voice mm-hmm. um, and, and speaking from various positions. So can you talk a little bit about throwing your voice and, and how that works in in your poetry? Yeah, well, there's one of my older poems that starts out, Ventro- ventriloquy is the mother tongue. Uh, I think, you know, we learned to, to speak from other people. Sometimes I still hear my mother's intonations in my voice. Um, so we have to sort of recognize that. And I think um, I've just chosen to sometimes in my poems emphasize it by bringing in um, clearly outside voices. They, they're not always directly identified as such, but hopefully you can hear when a different tonality comes in. And the reader, um, I think often in poems, not just in my poems, should ask herself, what kind of person might be saying that? Because sometimes in my poems it could be uh, language picked up from from the medical world or from the bureaucratic or, or bureaucratic language or, of course, scientific language. And uh, it often is not introduced as a scientist says or, you know, doctors say or it's just sort of I just kind of come out with it in the hope and the faith that people will be able to recognize that sort of discourse. Two things that people listening to the radio might not know about your poems if they haven't read them on the page. One of them is that they're often in sections, mm-hmm. and I wondered, and they're off, often tonally distinct, the sections, and I wondered if, if there were different sources or word banks that, that were informing these different sections. And then the, mm-hmm. the, the, second part, what, the second part that people might not notice is how frequently there are words in, in quotations and scare quotes, and which sort of calls question to who's, who's speaking them and what um, relationship that speaker has to the word. Mm-hmm. Uh, it sort of puts you on on unstable ground regarding these words. Mm-hmm. Can can you talk a little bit about both of those aspects uh, in your poetry? Yeah, it's true that I think a majority of my poems have um, some kind of section breaks. Sometimes there are sections divided with an asterisk, or sometimes divided with a number, and uh, or even if there isn't that kind of device there will be a sort of logical leap between uh, stanzas and between sections. So the poems are, are full of spaces. And I think that the world is that way. I mean, that is sort of my experience of the world, is, is that um, nobody fills in the gaps for you. Um, nobody explains cause and effect for you. We're often just left with this impression and that impression. We have to figure out how to connect them, and we do. So I think I, I maybe duplicate that in my poems because that's what seems authentic to experience to me. Um, I mean, there is, in fact, no narrator in, I think, any of our heads who says, now I am walking out onto the porch, now I'm sitting down, now I see a plane in the sky and I have this thought. Some people (laughs) write that way, but, you know, I don't. I just say what the thought about the plane was. I mean, uh, that's an arbitrary example, but... (laughs) 
<laughs> well, you've said before that narrative is as natural as, as a sonnet, which I yeah. think is a good, a good way to, to yeah. bring that in. And you've also mentioned um, in that same essay, The Feminist Poetics sort of speaks to something that you just said, because um, you redefine for us and make strange again the word clarity. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're talking about uh, an essay of Lynn Hagenian's uh, called Strangeness. And you say that clarity does not need to be readable because the world itself isn't isn't readable. If we really think about it, mm-hmm. the world is not uh, it, the first thing we think about is not necessarily readability. Um, but I wondered when you say in this essay that you you look for a different kind of clarity, one that is not about control but about attention. Mm-hmm. Um, and you describe it as one where the sensorium of the world can enter as it presents itself. Mm-hmm. It makes me think of uh, of us of uh, again of science of like an empiricist. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you see that in, in the way that you you're trying to, to 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 most clearly represent what your experience of the world is? Um, so narrative isn't seem like the most accurate. Um, so this this polyvocal and um, disjunctive mm-hmm. a- approach is a mirroring for you. Yeah, I mean I, that. When you, when you describe it as empiricism, and uh, I know what you mean, that sort of sounds as if I'm um, restricted to uh, the imagistic. And that's, that's not true, although I often do start with an image or with something I see. But I could also start with a voice or even with something from a dream. But what, what holds these things together is that they are things that rather suddenly intrude on my consciousness. There's that word consciousness again, but things that present themselves. So I tend to start with things that present themselves, and then how will I deal with that? So I don't, I never start with an abstraction. Students often ask me that. Do I, you know, do I want to write a poem about memory or, you know, whatever? No. I mean, something has to arise almost naturally, whatever that means, um, arise objectively. And then I begin to react to it and juxtapose other similar things to it or with it as a way of understanding it. Hmm. Can we hear um, a new poem of yours, My Erasures, and also New Zombie? And if you have any thoughts specific to those around the parts the way the parts are juxtaposed or the use of quota- of okay. quoted yeah. words. That'd that would be, good. be great. My erasures. My erasures were featured. I collected debris to sell as crash art, crush porn. Say goodbye to Lonesome George, the last Galapagos tortoise. I was a pushover for the laws of physics. I pictured us as two seals hauled out on a sunny rock, the roar around us a matter of course. Yeah, I could talk about this one and where the material comes from because there are sources for several of these sections. Um, The first section sort of stands alone. Um, There's an asterisk right after it. My erasures were featured. That's something that I read on a friend's Facebook post. Of course, many of my Facebook (laughs) friends are poets, needless to say. And um, 
I like this guy and, and his writing, but, you know, that was a boast. We all boast on Facebook, though, in a way, humble boasts or whatever. So somehow that just struck me. I knew what he meant by erasures. It's a literary, it's sort of a, you know, experimental literary technique where you uh, take a, a published text and take out most of the words and find some interesting words that are left and, uh, you know, make that be the poem. And that's what he meant. But somehow I heard erasures with a kind of double meaning. We, I was talking about double meaning before, and I'm, I tend to be very attracted to it. And I, I started to think here about erasures as, uh, you know, the sort of um, erasing of the natural world that humanity is doing. So that that's the first line and also the first section. The second section... I collected debris to sell as crash art. Those are the first two lines of the three lines in that section. Um, I actually heard an artist say, talking about his work. And I thought, that's interesting, but it's also sort of grotesque. (laughs) (laughs) Debris to sell as crash art. He said that crash art. So is this like, I think he was talking about debris left over from accidents like car accidents, run out and get a piece, you know. Um, so I just couldn't help but put that in a poem. And then I went on to crush porn because that's the next thing that occurred to me. I mean, it sa- I think it occurred to me because crash and crush sound alike. But shall I say what crush porn is? Or do people know? Or do you uh, not no want idea. me to say it on the radio? I, I, have, I have no idea what it is. Okay, well, <laughs> it's... Um, and I don't know why I know, but I do. It's when masochists like to be stepped on by women with high heels. Hmm. That's crush porn. So anyway, and I maybe just... maybe it's crash art, too. Yeah, I sort of <laughs> bounced from crash art to crush porn. Um, just sort of, I guess, pulling out the decadence of the, of the crash art quote, but also just bouncing off of it, um, you know, sound-wise. And then the third section, by that time, by this time, by the time I got to the third section, I had realized I wanted this to have something to do with extinctions, you know, that these erasures, my erasures were featured, was going to have something to do with um, the erasing of of species from the earth. So I deliberately looked up um, species that have gone extinct recently. And uh, one was uh, the the Galapagos tortoise, some kind of Galapagos tortoise. that They had given the last uh, specimen a name, Lonesome George. So then I came up with, say goodbye to Lonesome George, the last Galapagos tortoise. So that's a, a sort of, um, I don't know, bitter um, bounce off my erasures were featured. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, they all come from a different source yeah. to some extent. Well, maybe instead of reading New Zombie, you could read My Erasures again, because I'm sure people will hear it differently now that okay. you've walked us through a little bit of it. All right. My Erasures. My Erasures were featured. I collected debris to sell as crash art, crush porn. Say goodbye to Lonesome George, the last Galapagos tortoise. I was a pushover for the laws of physics. I pictured us as two seals hauled out on a sunny rock, 
the roar around us a matter of course. We've been listening to poet Ray Armentrout read her poem, My Erasures. So when you say you, you, have a lo- you gravitate towards double meanings in, in a lot of your poems, is that what you mean by uh, Cheshire poetics when you describe your poetics as Cheshire? Yeah, I guess by Cheshire, I, I mean not only that there can be double meanings, but there can even be opposed meanings. Because, of course, famously, the Cheshire cat sort of points in both directions and then disappears. Um, so I'm interested in, in double meanings because uh, they always, it always reminds us of what we don't know and what we don't see. First, we see one, see or hear one possible meaning, and then we realize that there's another one lurking, maybe. Um, the way I heard my erasures were featured first as what this poet meant, uh, a literary technique, and then in its larger potential meaning as the way that humans are erasing the world. Um, that was like the second meaning, but it sort of came in behind and around the first meaning. And that's an experience that I I like to um, duplicate, I guess, for for the reader, make you as paranoid as I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, in you walking us through my erasures, you can hear that some of the things are things you've overheard mm-hmm. and that cause associations with other things that you've seen or overheard mm-hmm. um, that are found in a way and then juxtaposed or collaged and then other things you've actually sought out. So right. we have we have a different um, connection of of uh, attention versus agency, perhaps mixed together. Right. Um, or, or even, you know, written originally, like the last part, I pictured us as two seals hauled out on a sunny rock, the roar around us, a matter of course. That is written in the usual way. <laughs> yeah. Well, you've said, you've said um, it may be that, you said that it may be that you are most sincere when you're posing questions mm-hmm. and least sincere when you're making assertions. Mm-hmm. And, um, I was curious if do you see the assertions that you make as the outside voices farther from self uh, and the, that they're more imported, um, even though we would normally think of an assertion as very close to self mm-hmm. and that the inquiries are closer to you? I guess that's true. But I just want to also th- um, add that I don't feel all that distanced from the speaker in my erasures. I mean... In a way, I'm uh, satirizing the statements, the the positions, such as my erasures were featured. But I don't really stand apart from that speaker because I'm part of humanity and humanity is destroying the natural world. So um, and, you know, in a in a smaller way, I I also might say something like my erasures were featured in such and such a magazine. That's not an impossible remark for me to make. I'm a poet, too. Um, So it's not like I'm just saying, you know, the person who originally said this is a bad guy. I mean, I'm implicating myself and the rest of us as well, at least I hope. But in some poems, you do have outside voices, which I think Mm -hmm. are more clearly not Mm -hmm. you. Um, And I wondered if this question of sincerity and assertion versus inquiry is where we or where your poetics and and a sort of politic cross in in your work and what i mean is that there's a politics in valuing attentiveness over 
assertion to begin with. But also, uh, if the assertions that you make using thrown voices that are possibly farther away from who you are, that are less sincere, if if you're if you are interrogating these assertions, mm-hmm. um, and if that is partly what you mean when you say that your poems aim to undermine a voice of social control. Yes. Um... Maybe I'll read my poem, Mother's Day. That really has uh, a lot of uh, sort of almost parody of social control in it. And it also speaks in a voice that's definitely not the way I usually speak. Um, Mother's Day. I wring the last sweetness from syllables and consume it before you. I make sense like a scorpion and the sun will be smitten. If I appear to address you while quoting an old text, I am indistinguishable from nature and therefore sublime. If I reveal myself mercilessly, what will I not transcend? Like God, I will leave an arc of implication. Can, can you speak to certain lines or certain voices that that yeah. came to mind? Well, this voice in Mother's Day is a very, I mean, before I tell you what some of the sources of it are, you can tell, I think, that it's a very uh, self-confident, um, autocratic, really, voice. It's uh, a sort of threatening voice. It's a voice that has no shame, right? I ring the last, who, I don't, you don't know at first who this I is, but it's clearly not me. I ring the last sweetness from syllables and consume it before you. I mean, this is a tyrant, right? <laughs> right. This is a tyrant speaking. Let's hope it's not you. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's part of me. <laughs> um, it's interesting that it's called Mother's Day. I really couldn't tell you why. That just occurred to me, and I couldn't get the idea out of my mind. Um, but if I, when I say, if I appear to address you while quoting an old text... I am indistinguishable from nature. Well, I was quoting an old text to some extent here. I was reading Revelations, and some of the lines, uh, the part about the scorpion and the part that says, and the sun will be smitten, you know, that's from Revelations, right? So in a way, I'm kind of playing God here, mm-hmm. uh, channeling channeling uh, God. And um, Except since it's called Mother's Day, one pictures... I think, probably a female speaker. Hmm. So um, I'm just trying on the robes of absolute authority there to see how they fit or <laughs> how yeah. they sound coming from a woman. Well, you've, you've also said, it's to just continue this line around a possible politics, you said that the poetry you value reproduces our conflicts and fractures and yet is held together in the ghost embrace of assonance and consonance in the echoed and echoing body of language. And I wondered if if that ghost embrace, if that holding together, or that the cohering of, of oppositional forces is a modeling in a way of a different, mm-hmm. of a different way a society could be. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's yeah. a bizarre way to look into. No, it could be. I mean, it's a, that would be a kind of benign anarchy, I guess, you know, a sort of... Um, willing associational uh, group coming together that's that's unforced mm-hmm. well uh, speaking of like a of collectivity and ghost embraces mm-hmm. 
you're part of an ongoing project called the the Grand Piano, mm-hmm. an experiment in collective autobiography. Um, can you talk about what that is? What is well? What is the project, and wh- what do you mean by collective autobiography? Well, the, the project is complete. There are ten volumes of it, and it was written by ten authors who were um, associated with the so-called language poets in San Francisco. When I was in my 20s, I lived in San Francisco, and I became friends with these people, uh, such as Lynn Higinian and Ron Silliman and Bob Perlman. And uh, it was Barrett Watton's idea, actually. He kind of organized it. He was part of that group, too. And um, we wrote mainly about the years between, say, 1975 and 1985, as we remembered them from our perspective. So each of us, in each of the ten volumes, there's a sort of a loose theme, but it's not very directive, and we each take it up from our own memory and our own experience and write a prose piece about it. So in that sense, it's a collective autobiography. Hmm. Um, in mine, sometimes mine slips out of the past tense, and I write about things that are going on in the present as well. And I even wrote two poems for for that that ended up in the books, and then uh, in in those books, and then later in my poetry collections. Because apparently, I can't write prose without slipping into poetry. But um, if you know, it, for those of you who know uh, that book by Virginia Woolf called The Waves, mm-hmm. it's a little bit like that with all of these overlapping um, voices coming in and, and telling what is at least partly the same story, but uh, also a differing story. And were you, when you're writing your part for a given volume, are you aware of where it's placed? Are you writing in relationship to the mm-hmm. piece, pieces on either side of it? Yeah, yes, we would know who would who would be before and who would come after. And we look before it actually was published, we read one another's and commented and yeah. sort of had we all had input. Well, I, I want to return to something you said earlier uh, when we were talking about your upbringing and, and about evangelical um, philosophy and uh, it being material and and your parents being distrustful of, of mm-hmm. metaphor. Mm-hmm. Because you're also distrustful of metaphor. Ah, uh, that's true, but isn't it? <laughs> but, in a, but in a different way, mm-hmm. I think for different reasons. Um, in, in support of your discussion of, of, of a different prophet- poetics and a redefinition of clarity, you, you talk about Lynn Aginian's essay, um, and she talks about the difference between metonymy and metaphor, where she says that whereas a metaphor relies on a code, one that preserves meaning and transfers it from one thing to another, Metonymy instead moves attention from thing to thing. Its principle is combination, not selection. Metonymy is unstable, foregrounding interrelationship. And it seems like one key concept for the language poets was a move away from metaphor toward non-referentiality. Uh, but you've said before that you're, you're, you weren't convinced that language could be non-referential. Um, and if it could, you weren't sure you were um, mm-hmm. that interested in the results. Well, that's true. Um, so <laughs> I, I want to hear a little bit more about what sounds like an uneasy relationship for you around metaphor. T- talk to us about it and, um, and what your thoughts are in relationship to what Higinian was saying. Well, I really think metaphor is inevitable. You know, you can't get away from it. You can and should 
um, be aware of its limitations and not be fooled by it. But I think, you know, all of our thinking is in some sense metaphorical. It's embedded in, in language, and it's just something that it's natural for human beings to do. Um, the sort of dark side of it is that uh, in metaphor, one term kind of subsumes the other term. Um, so, you know, one self gets mapped onto another self, which is hierarchical in a way that can be bad. Well, Steph Burt, when they were reviewing your book, was talking about the latest cognitive science, and I'm guessing you you probably read some of it about what you just said, that metaphor is a fundamental part of our sort of ordinary conceptual systems, Mm -hmm. and they're called small spatial stories, so such as we make room in our schedule or Mm, to move up in the workplace. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. These are inevitable spatial stories. Um, but you seem to, uh, instead of avoiding metaphor, exa- sort of exaggerate the metaphor mm-hmm. to point it to point out the story that's in it, mm-hmm. the story that yeah. seems invisible and maybe is mapping and, and erasing. Yeah, I think that's that's true. Uh, in order to question it uh, and sort of um, pull it apart a little bit, some examples of that I, could be the poem "Accounts," which tries to deal with physics by coming up with sort of crazy metaphors or also or integer which deals directly with metaphor yeah well to let, some extent. let's have you read integer now i think okay. this would be a, a great time for it okay i think i'm just also going to say before i start that a lot of my work um seems to deal with uh unity versus fracture um and and metaphor tries to unite things so anyway, with that said, and there are different voices in this too, so it hits on a lot of the um, themes of our conversation. Integer. One what? One grasp? No hands. No collection of stars. Something dark pervades it. Metaphor is ritual sacrifice. It kills the lookalike. No, metaphor is homeopathy. A healthy cell exhibits contact inhibition. These temporary credits will no longer be reflected in your next billing period. Dark meaning not reflecting, not amenable to suggestion. We're listening today to Ray Armentrout read from partly new and selected poems, 2001 to 2015. When we when we talk about the total, totalizing metaphor and the stable self, and perhaps putting Newtonian physics on one side, and metonymy and polyvocal unstable self and quantum physics on the other side, it, it sort of returns me back to your conversation with the physicist Brian Keating, and he, at one point he was talking about the role of aesthetics in science, how, mm-hmm. how some yeah. scientists thought that elegance in an equation was more important than whether the equation was correct. And then the two of you even discussed the belief that if something were elegant, that it might be more likely to be true. And this made me wonder about different types of poets and different readers of poetry in the sense that I wonder if people who are striving 
for a controlling code, for a, a stable self that carries them from one from the beginning to the end of the poem, were possibly striving for elegance. If they were striving for a balanced equation, uh, uh, even if the equation wasn't true. Ah, well, that's an interesting idea. Yeah, it was. It was. Paul Dirac, the famous physicist Paul Dirac, said that it's more important to have beauty in your equations than for them to conform to the results of experiment, which is, he believed that the experiment could be wrong, but beauty could not, which is a lot like Keats, right, at the end of Ode on a Grecian Urn, truth is beauty, beauty, truth. Um, And Brian was skeptical of that, and, you know, I... I, I, I guess I'm skeptical of it, although I, I think that if so many scientists or so many physicists especially seem to feel that way, they seem to feel that when, when their equations have what they call beauty, which is really something to do with um, not only balance but uh, maximum simplicity, that then they do turn out to be, to accord with nature more often than not. And then they'll even say kind of metaphysical things like nature finds the simplest, most elegant way. Um, so that's a kind of faith, you know. There's, there's a way in which physics, as opposed to biology, which is messier, as is cognitive science, uh, physics gets sort of accidentally slides into, you know, a, a sort of mysticism, yeah. I think. Well, when you when you talk about um, maximum simplicity mm-hmm. and elegance, I, uh, one might think hearing about your poetics that one, that uh, you have a poetics that's polyvocal with the juxtaposition of tonally mm-hmm. tonally disparate language with an unstable self, that you might by necessity be a a poet of the long line or at mm-hmm. least a poet that mm-hmm. has more of a maximalist and ver- verbose tendency, but you are really known for compression and concision. I mm-hmm. did, and I wondered why that was. And when you said maximum simplicity and, and we're talking about elegance of equations, mm-hmm. I wondered if it was somehow related to that. Well, you know, of course, when I started out, I didn't really know anything about physics when I, you know, back in, oh, whenever I started, <laughs> way back. Um, but I, back then, I think I was drawn to uh, really minimalist poems, too. I'm I started reading Zen Cohen's. I started reading uh, the the haiku poets like Basho and Issa. And I was very drawn to that kind of work and to Williams, as I mentioned before, and his uh, very short poems. And those were my early inspirations and just what I was kind of naturally drawn to. And I still, even if the poems are internally complex, want the the lines and the expressions to be as uh, condensed and compressed as possible. I think there's a lot of kind of, the more you can compress something, the more energy you can get into it. And that's almost a, like a physical idea, too. Yeah. Uh, Marilyn Robinson recently wrote uh, in the New York Times about Emily Dickinson, one of her fa- mm. favorite poems of hers called The Brain is Wider Than the Sky. Yeah. Um, and it reminded me of your poetry, the way she described um, Dickinson. And she says, one of the things I love about Dickinson is the way that every time I read her poetry, I feel as though I'm encountering it for the first time. It has a reserve of meaning 
that seems to open very slowly over a long series of readings. Part of that is due to the extreme compression of her poems, which strip away everything inessential, greatly magnifying the potency of each individual world. She puts an extraordinary pressure on language by her parsimoniousness. Mm-hmm. And I love that idea of reserve of meaning. And I think in the way that Robinson's talking about, there is that reserve of meaning in your poems, but there's also another level of reserve of meaning in that you are often using words that have a surplus meaning. I try to, yeah. You do. That's what interests me. And, and Dickinson is my favorite. I mean, I've been talking about Williams, and I love Williams, but I feel, um, you know, companionable with Williams. With Dickinson, I'm in awe of Dickinson, really. Hmm. And can you talk about words with surplus meaning? I think when you read Spent in particular, mm-hmm. we get that sense of you um, uh, using surplus meaning as a motor through mm-hmm. through a poem. I'll read Spent in a minute, but let me uh, talk just a little bit about Integer because I can talk about that question there too. Uh, the third section of Integer is actually a quote from my phone bill. <laughs> but I found, or I thought I heard, surplus meaning in it, it it goes, um, these temporary credits will no longer be reflected in your next billing period, which sounds sort of threatening. (laughs) Very threatening. (laughs) And especially in the, I hope, in the context of the poem, which is, you know, building off metaphor is ritual sacrifice, and then um, a healthy cell exhibits contact inhibition, that's technical language from medicine. Um, it's, and by a healthy cell there, they mean a non-cancerous cell exhibits contact inhibition. It won't grow into a different organ. It won't invade, right? Um, I guess the implication was that metaphor tends to invade the other side, like cancer. Um, that's a metaphor in itself, though. You cannot escape from metaphor. Um, but, you know, so I pick up a bit of medical language. A healthy cell exhibits contact inhibition. And then I bounce into this quote from the phone bill um, about these temporary credits no longer being reflected in your next billing period. Um, well, of course, what that literally means is pretty simple. Um, but as it, as in... Uh, the beginning of my erasures, my erasures were featured. Uh, erasures can have more meaning than just a literary device, and temporary credits can have more meaning than just uh, what you have to pay on your phone bill. So that that's what got me thinking that maybe this would be a good time to read two, three. Oh, yeah. Okay. Which, which um, I think would be a good segue. Okay. Okay. Two, three. Sad fat boy in pirate hat. Long, old, dented, copper-colored Ford. How many traits must a thing have in order to be singular? Echo persuades us everything we say has been said at least once before. Two plump, bald men in gray T-shirts and tan shorts, are walking a small bulldog, followed by the eyes of an invisible third person. The Trinity was born from what we know of the bitter symbiosis of couples. 
Can we reduce Echo's sadness by synchronizing our speeches? Is it the beginning or end of real love when we pity a person because in him we see ourselves? We've been listening to Ray Armentrout read from her latest uh, new and selected poems, Partly. So my last guest on the show before you is Eileen Miles, and I, oh. I feel like there's something faded about the two of you <laughs> coming to Portland back-to-back, not only because you were the first two records released from Phonograph Editions, so I've been listening mm-hmm. to both of you on, on vinyl as I prepare <laughs> for your interviews, but also because both of you seem to be questioning uh, self. Um, you, you, whereas when you talk about uh, throne voices, Miles uses the words performance and, and gesture, um, and you even used that before the performance of self earlier in the, our conversation. Um, the self doesn't seem to lie beneath the performance and the gesture. There seems to be, almost be an emptiness um, be, beyond mm-hmm. the layering in, in what we were talking about in, in that interview. Uh, but she also talks in, in relationship to the vinyl recording of acousmatic sound, the phenomenon of divorcing the voice from the body with recorded sound. And she says that... Um, it's something that we've forgotten is quite radical that um, that we've been able to divorce the voice from the sound, and that that reminded me a little bit of the idea of of throwing your voice. Mm-hmm. I mean, literally, mm-hmm. we have mm-hmm. here uh, throwing your voice. But uh, um, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about the experience in general about of reading your poems, of hearing yourself read your poems, and then also more specifically about this process of putting your your poems onto a record? I enjoy reading my poems. I mean, I read them aloud to myself as I'm composing them because I sound in a poem is actually very important to me, the acoustics of it. Sometimes I think people don't know that about me, but it's true that um, something can just, you know, really sound right to me or not. And uh, that can be sort of the deciding factor in what I will write next, what the next line will be. Um, But I don't like to hear myself read, which means that I've actually never heard the record conflation. For one thing, I don't have a record player. But for another thing, um, even with, you know, podcasts, I mean, I will never listen to this if this is a podcast or a radio broadcast. I will never listen to it (laughs) because... um, and I imagine this makes me different from Eileen. I get very sort of shy and grossed out by hearing myself. <laughs> I think it would it would make me so self-conscious that I yeah. wouldn't be able to do it anymore. So um, your therapist called you perfectionist, you said, yeah. right? Um, <laughs> um, so, so the fact that you had to open the door partway through uh, the recording of the album, Conflation, um, because it was too hot out. And then we as the listener can hear and you as the recorder can hear the wind chimes and mm-hmm. an occasional passing car. Um, was that something that bothered you? Or or is it some way, does it, because it feels in a way like it dovetails nicely with your aesthetic of allowing in the happenstance mm-hmm. of allowing, you know, this would be like found material that becomes mm-hmm. part mm-hmm. of the poem. But but um, how, how was that experience of, yeah, of recording did. and doing that? That didn't bother me. I mean, um, I liked hearing the wind chimes. Uh, I guess passing cars could be a problem, but I don't think so many passed that it became a problem. So I thought that was a sort of interesting transition, you know, and it gave maybe a sense of 
uh, context. So no, that didn't bother me. Um, I wouldn't really agree that I'm a perfectionist exactly. <laughs> You've said that your 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 work is oral, uh, a u r a l. Yeah. That you that it doesn't please you until it sounds right, right. but that you also recognize that we sort of conflate. Uh, when something sounds good, that it also sounds true. Uh huh. And yeah. are are you playing with that that tendency yeah. that I think humans have? If it sounds good, we we believe it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sometimes I am. Sometimes I will um, deliberately make an assertion or a statement that, well, not that's clearly wrong, but that might be wrong, but that sounds right, because it's that's a, often how we're deceived. You know, we're. Simple, simple alliteration can make something memorable, as advertisers and politicians well know. So I know uh, you are less physics focused now. Is that true? That that you're moved on to reading about other sciences, and if if so, how how is that uh, affecting the work that you're creating? Um, yeah, it's not that I'm not interested in physics anymore, but I feel like I've almost worked through what I can possibly understand there. And I, I don't think I have a new focus that's quite as intense as that focus, but I have been reading um, biology and genetics uh, and and such to some extent. And I think that's getting into my new manuscripts. My next book is called Wobble, and that's coming out next year. And now I'm working on one that's called End Quote. But I don't really have those poems with me, so I can't refer to them. Yeah, but you're, but you're saying that maybe neurology or biology mm-hmm. are, are informing some of the yeah. the language or, or mm-hmm. questions. Mm-hmm. And do you have any um, thoughts on the way that sort of changes the, the tilt of the, your poems versus a physics-infused one? Well, I still am, I'm still gravi- gravitating towards the edge of what I can understand. Mm-hmm. And with consciousness studies, you know, Really, um, it's still pretty much up for grabs. I mean, you know, experts don't agree. So there's lots of, uh, you know, sort of puzzlement to go off of there. I think with biology, there's in many areas more certainty. But people still wonder uh, about the, the origin of life and how life could have begun and what what the early cells were like. Um, so that's one thing I like to read about. It's definitely true. The more you go back to the transition from not living to living, yeah. the stranger and more vague yes. biology seems yes, to get. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, thinking about what is living. I mean, and then you get into the same thing with viruses, which, of course, still exist in abundance today. But are they alive? In some ways, they act as if they are, they reproduce. In other ways, they act as if they're not. They don't eat. They don't metabolize. Um, they're sort of zombies. I, you know, we referred to my poem, The New Zombie. Well, there's a, uh, there's a reference to viruses yeah. in there. And probably I was reading something about biology then, although I don't remember for sure. Well, maybe we can end with that poem okay. if, you, sure. if, if you'd like to read it. All right. I mean, this is not all about viruses. They just come in, you know. As if you've been listening very long, you know that's how my poems are. Okay. The New Zombie. I stare at a faint spinning disc in the black, endlessly, ready to pounce. 
I actually say, I'm so sick of zombies. Viral relics in the genome, genes that switch themselves off and on, unthinking but coordinated. Zombie surfeit, half off zombie, the best zombie imitation, invisible zombie hand. It was great having you on Between the Covers today, Ray. Thank you. It was fun being here. You had such good questions. We're talking today to the poet Ray Armentrout about her latest two books, The Chapbook, Entanglements, and Partly New and Selected Poems, 2001 to 2015. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO, volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. If you enjoyed today's program, consider supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash between the covers. And also while you're there, check out the growing archive of bonus material available. Thanks for listening.